G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. And it sounds like I've said that phrase a hundred times, and I have because we're celebrating a hundredth episode today. I can't believe we've come so far. That's a, that's a pretty decent milestone. It certainly is, brother, and I want to thank you for joining me on this amazing journey as we've made our way through the primeval history, the prequel to Scripture, and the interpretive key that helps us to unlock the big picture of the Bible. A hundred times I've sat down to record an episode, aside from a few times where I've had guest interviews, you've been there for every one. So thanks, Chris, for your support and for doing what you do, being there every week. It'd be a pretty dry argument without you. <laughs> My pleasure, brother. It's uh, It's been an awesome ride and it's just been a good excuse to catch up with you again. And um, I've been very encouraged to see all the, uh, the feedback and the questions, the good commentary and comments we get from listeners, and just to see your book and hard work just get the, uh, the wonderful traction and the attention from other YouTubers and other podcasters as well. So big round of applause to you, Tim. Ooh, thank you very much. Yeah, and, and a big shout out to our listeners as well, because all of this is for nothing if nobody's participating and learning. You know, we do this because we love you guys. We hope you enjoy every episode. Let us know in the socials if you've heard every episode so far. And thanks, of course, for all those giant questions you've sent in. Well, we better get into it. I guess it's kind of fitting that we'd be talking about this on our 100th episode today. We're talking about two things. Last time on the show, I teased a bit and said we'd be talking about the Apkalu and the Anunnaki, the Mesopotamian sons of God. But we're also talking about humanity. And we're going to see how different those two groups are, not only in biblical theology, but in the Mesopotamian source material that the Jewish scribes in Babylon were being taught under Nebuchadnezzar, as we mentioned last week. It'd be a good topic to cover, and unfortunately, most Bible commentaries are a bit disappointing when it comes to this area. Yeah, they sort of have to be, because most of the time these are done by committees or commissioned by certain groups with particular interests. So there's either a bias against the deep contextual understanding or a tendency to gloss over problematic elements and issues in order to maintain the status quo. And I'm talking about issues like, let's say, mosaic authorship, for example, because lots of people hold to that, so they don't necessarily want to challenge it. That means they're not going to get deep into this Mesopotamian material because it seems a bit incongruent with the idea that Moses would have known all this stuff and written the whole lot himself and somehow managed to make it correlate with what would eventually become the lived experience of Jews hundreds of years in the future from his perspective. And that's where it's really handy to have references like Daniel chapter 1 up your sleeve. You know, we were looking at that last week to be able to show to people and demonstrate that not only was it likely that Jewish scribes had access to these ancient Mesopotamian texts, but it's directly stated by the author of Scripture. But we wouldn't want people ignorant of their own Bibles to be upset by an interpretation of their Bibles that didn't align with their ignorance. But I digress. Sarcasm aside, uh, anyway, let's see what all the fuss is about and dive into the biblical text. And I like the CSB here because of its clarity, even though it does unfortunately use Earth instead of ground here, which makes us think about planets instead of the metaphorical application of the ground as the people of the land. Uh, and, and we wonder how people can read this and come away thinking of ancient aliens and all that nonsense. Well, anyway, the text comes under the subheading, Sons of God and Daughters of Mankind. Genesis 6, verse 1, When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. 
This is it. We're getting into the exciting stuff now. Yeah, this text is powerful and evocative. I've talked many times about the negative connotation associated with the word translated as began in the primeval history. After witnessing the righteousness of the patriarchs through Genesis 5, it comes as a shock to be reminded that back in chapter 4, mankind was desperately depraved and helpless without remedy. That word halal, translated here as began, reminds us of defilement and impurity and the beginning of corruption that will spread and fester and infect the world. We saw it in Genesis 4 with the people crying out for mercy under the oppression of the kings which the author skillfully tells in such a way as to remind us of the kings of Israel. We're going to see it again two more times after the flood. Every time, it's negative. Yeah, and you've elaborated that a fair bit in your book, I believe. Yeah, I certainly have. Just like in chapter 4, when we saw that word in connection with Enosh, who represented the human condition. It's connected with humanity, and it's not just a group of individuals. Because again, just like chapter 4 and the chapters that come before it, we're in an archetypal narrative. I've spoken about this before. We're going to read verses 1 through 8 of chapter 6, paying attention to that fact now. When the man began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of the man were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And Yahweh said, My spirit will not rest with man forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth, both in those days and afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of the man, who bore children to them. They were the mighty men of old, men of the name. When the Lord saw that the man's wickedness was widespread on the earth, and that every inclination of his mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made the man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe the man whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. All right, so I've sort of adapted the CSB there, made a few tweaks that I think reflect the intent of the Hebrew author a bit better by just being a bit more literal with the reading. What that does is it shows you where the original text has the man rather than mankind or humanity or something like that. It still means humanity or mankind, though, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right, it does. Uh, the reason I'm showing you this in the text is because I want you to see how it needs to be read consistently from chapter 1 through 6. And when you do that, the message becomes very clear. It's interesting because I don't think anybody picks up Genesis and reads that story of the man as the archetype of all humans and he carries that through into the flood story. They tend to leave it behind after Genesis 3. I reckon you're right there, Chris, but now that we've seen it, it cannot be unseen. And that leaves us in a difficult situation. It'd be tempting to pin this all on Adam. You know, he's the man originally, so it's all him, right? The man really messed up. Sucks to be him. But as we know from our earlier discussions on this, the man is an archetype. He's all of us. He's the human race exemplified as created by God. So when something concerns him, it concerns everyone. Now you understand why Noah was chosen as the only one righteous. We've already seen how the man was chosen to represent the Lord God and to be his body in flesh. We saw how the man received the Spirit of God, described as the breath of life in Genesis 2, and we saw the use of the ancient Near Eastern mouth-opening ritual in bringing the man into being as the imager of God. The man becomes the body of God by having the Spirit remain or rest in him. Did you see that in Genesis 6.3? 
my spirit will not remain in, abide with, contend with, rest in man forever. And I talked about that in the uh, in the Q&A back in Season 2, Episode 5. You need to check that one out if you don't remember or if you come lately. Or you could just wait till next week because we're going to talk about it then. But the man is convinced that he needs something external to help him make good judgments. That's the essence of the temptation in Genesis 3. And in an effort to gain the wisdom he already had through the Spirit of God, he gave it away only to find himself naked without it. The fruit of that was, of course, the desire to establish himself by means of human achievement and the pursuit of immortality through first progeny and then technology. And we saw that in the line of Cain, but as Cain disappears into obscurity, we come back to the man and his new line, this time in the pursuit of righteousness, albeit still within the constraints of earthly power structures. And that's what we were looking at last season, going through Genesis 5. Yeah, this time the man's in trouble again, but not only because of his permissiveness in the garden, and not just because of his desire for power and immortality, and not because of his need for technology to alleviate his suffering and the difficulties of life. It's all of that, but the core of the matter is, and always is, faithfulness, because it takes two to tango. These sons of God, they didn't get married to these men's daughters by violence or deception. We have a tendency to read the phrase, they took wives, as if it was forceful or without consent, but we really don't have any textual basis for that interpretation. This was normal language for marriage, not for abuse. It's true that we do see that kind of abuse in stories like Gilgamesh, but we're not reading Gilgamesh, and even if we were, the language in use doesn't work as a parallel here. What did Jesus say? In the days of Noah, they were marrying and giving in marriage. Sounds a lot like people were okay with it. Sounds like the man is in trouble again. Let me give you some examples. This is Genesis 11, verse 29. Abram and Nahor took wives. Abram's wife was named Sarai. Nahor's wife was named Milcah. Here's Genesis 24, verse 40. He said to me, The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and make your journey a success, and you will take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's family. This is Genesis 24, 67. And Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah and took Rebekah to be his wife. Isaac loved her, and he was comforted after his mother's death. I don't see all the violence and rape in here, do you see? Because I don't, but there's more. Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He slept with her, and the Lord granted conception to her, and she gave birth to a son. This is Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 to 20. I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. And lastly, here's Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. All right, so I think that's enough examples to prove my point in that those two words, take and wife, are not enough to build a case for some sort of violence or lack of consent. And I'm not saying that it's the same in every case where you find that language, but I am saying that you can't throw a blanket over every occurrence of that terminology and call it rape. Yeah, it's a good point. Having said that, it's clear that the author is painting a negative picture, which was already established with the choice of the word halal, meaning to begin or the beginning of defilement as most early commentators understood it. And that continues with a motif which we first saw back in Genesis 3 regarding seeing and taking, which again is almost always a bad thing. 
This is Genesis 3, verse 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom, so she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Genesis 6, 2, as we were just reading, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. Genesis 34, verse 2, when Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, who was the region's chieftain, saw her, he took her and raped her. And then we have Joshua seven twenty one. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Babylon, five pounds of silver, and a bar of gold weighing a pound and a quarter, I coveted them and took them. So we can see that dynamic of seeing and taking in play there throughout the biblical text. It's not always in a sexual context, nor is it necessarily violent or without consent, although again there are instances where that is obvious. But I think that's enough to demonstrate that on the whole this language is considered to be negative and it paints a dark background for this narrative here in Genesis 6. But it only becomes a problem when we understand who we're dealing with here. We already know the man. He's humanity as a whole. He's everyone. And his daughters, we know who they are. The man's having children, multiplying in the land. Naturally, there are going to be daughters who will become women and the progenitors of the next generation. That's the easy part. But who are these sons of God? Remember last week, we were reading the myth of sheep and grain. The first line says, When upon the hill of heaven and earth, An spawned the Anuna gods. An is the most high god in Mesopotamian mythology, and the Anuna or Anunnaki are his sons. If An is the king of the gods, then the Anunnaki are the princes and sons of the king, and that is precisely what the term Anunnaki means. It is literally the princely seed. Now, we talked last week about Daniel chapter 1, how it was made clear to us that biblical authors were reading and learning to write in cuneiform using classic Mesopotamian mythology, such as the myth of sheep and grain. And is it any wonder when we continue reading in the book of Daniel and we encounter these entities known as the prince of Greece, the prince of Persia, and so it goes on, those are the princely seed. They are the Anunnaki. They are what the Bible calls the sons of God. And it should be abundantly clear from the context of both biblical and Mesopotamian material that these are divine beings, not just human kings or judges or something like that. Yeah, okay, I think I see that. But watch what the Anuna gods do later in that same story. At that time, at the place of the gods' formation in their own home on the holy mound, they created sheep and grain. Having gathered them in the divine banqueting chamber, the Anuna gods of the holy mound partook of the bounty of sheep and grain but were not sated. The Anuna gods of the holy mound partook of the sweet milk of their holy sheepfold, but were not sated for their own well-being. In the holy sheepfold, they gave them to mankind as sustenance. Now, Assyriologist Adam Falkenstein translates the end of that passage differently. In his reading, it says, In the holy sheepfold, for their well-being, the breath of life to humanity. That sounds a bit different to sustenance. In other words, we're supposed to understand that according to this text, the myth of sheep and grain, the Anunnaki gave the breath of life to humans. Obviously, that is not the biblical understanding because it's very clear from Genesis 2 that it was the Lord God who breathed into man the breath of life. And because we have the use of that archetype, the man, we know that the breath of life was given by God for all of us. That means that the biblical version of events is intentionally at odds with that presented in this ancient Sumerian poem. And I say intentionally because, as we saw last week, it is abundantly clear that Jewish scribes were exposed to these classic works of Mesopotamian literature because it formed part of the education that they were receiving in Babylon 
as per Daniel chapter 1 and is evidenced by the clear polemic displayed in Genesis 4. But we are definitely not saying that the biblical authors were just ripping off Mesopotamian classic stories and just putting new names on old gods. That's right. So what we should be understanding in Genesis 2 is that human beings as a whole were created with the intent that they would function as the embodiment of God in the world as opposed to the idea that they would serve as slaves under divinized human kings who alone would function as the embodiment of a pantheon of lesser gods. Remember that in Mesopotamian theology, mankind was only created for the purpose of serving the appetites of the gods. This representation of the sons of God, which could be experienced only by the king, meant effectively providing slave labor for the gods through the subjugation of the masses which was going to be channeled through religious and political means in such a way as to bring glory to those gods and provide for their needs. And what were their needs exactly? Well, it's a bit of a trick question because the gods really didn't need anything from the humans, but keeping them busy satisfying the gods was an effective way to keep them distracted from searching out the one true God and honouring him. Early in Mesopotamian theology, there was little hope for the common man to achieve any kind of hope for the future beyond this life. Basically, if you were in a position to be able to do some legendary task or build something great, then you might be remembered after your death. Of course, kings and rulers were in a different position because they were considered to be a lower class of divine being in a sense. But it wasn't for everybody to have this hope of a glorified future state in the afterlife. Generally, it was considered that after you died, you'd become a resident of the underworld, which was a dark and shadowy place where it was believed that you would eat dust and that's where you would remain. The Amorites introduced to Babylon the idea that you could sustain your ancestors in the afterlife by providing offerings of food and drink for them in monthly rituals which were a kind of necromantic feast. So as long as you had somebody who remembered your name, then you could at least be sustained in the afterlife in some fashion better than a mere dust-eating shadow in the spirit realm. And that was a concern for people quite early in the biblical story as well. And we see the people of God develop out of that theology as they get better acquainted with God and learn his plans for a hopeful future. Really? Yeah, I'm not talking about the evolution of Jewish religion out of polytheism, because I don't buy that for a moment. But the fact is that God just randomly chose a pagan dude from a pagan culture, and slowly, Abram got to know who God was. So we see in Abram, in his desperate longing for an heir that would come from his own body, he doesn't care about where his stuff goes after he dies. What he cares about is who is going to sustain him in the afterlife. And are they sufficiently motivated to continue to honour Abram after his death in order to provide for Abram's afterlife? Okay, so how is that relevant to this discussion of the Anunnaki and the sons of God then? Well, we're going to learn that the intentional contrast between the Mesopotamian theology and that of the Bible is that in the biblical story, all humankind is given the privilege and the responsibility of being a representative of God and functionally speaking, an embodiment of him which was unavailable to the common man according to Mesopotamian theology, which therefore offered no hope for the afterlife. According to the biblical understanding, the hope of future glorification was presented first as a suggestion in this text, but later fleshed out as God presents the solution to the problems posed by the primeval history. So that's where Abraham comes in and God starts and doing that theology at the Amorites that he had grown up with. That's exactly right, Chris. That's where this whole thing's headed as we work through the primal history. In this podcast, we're driving toward that point, which is ultimately going to have its fulfillment in Jesus Christ and his continuing work through his body of faithful believers. We're going to see how Jewish and later Christian theology 
works its way out of the pagan roots of the ancient Near East as God reveals himself to mankind. And as that happens, we'll see how the people of God abandon the earthly hope for eternal life through civilization and offspring and human achievement, self-glorification. We will find out how sons and daughters are what we too were once about. Okay, that's the theme from Sons and Daughters, isn't it? I haven't, I haven't heard that in 30 years. Where do you get this stuff? Totally wasted on this audience, I'd imagine, though. Well, you don't think our audience is full of people who used to watch old Aussie daytime TV soapies? Uh, I, I think that's an accurate assumption, yes. But that's certainly a blast from the past. I'm going to have, uh, going to have an earworm for weeks and weeks now. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I guess I'm just getting nostalgic about doing 100 episodes. Fair enough. Uh, but on a more serious note, you talked about how the uh, the sons of God are pretty clearly understood from their Mesopotamian backgrounds as divine beings, but there are other views around, aren't there, about who they could be, where they came from. Isn't it worth having a look at these and just to see if there's another explanation? Well, I suppose we should at least humour some of those ideas, if only for the sake of showing how they don't work. Uh, what I'm going to do here is give you a slightly abbreviated version of an extract from my book, Answers to Giant Questions. I know I said I wasn't going to do this much, but to be honest, I'm far more interested in presenting a view that works instead of arguing about views that don't. So you'll forgive my lack of enthusiasm for wandering down those rabbit holes. This is from Chapter 2, which is called The Origin of the Nephilim, the Sons of God. Here is the quote. One view of the Sons of God and their offspring that has found favour with those seeking a naturalistic explanation proposes that they were Neanderthals. This view suggests that at the earliest stage of human existence, the predecessors of Homo sapiens lived alongside us. In this view, Neanderthal men is to be considered the mighty men of old, the Hebrew Giborim. Their muscular, brutish form seems to fit the bill for a violent warrior, but there is no satisfying explanation offered for the title Sons of God. Why would an author call Neanderthal man a son of God? There's no plausible rationale for connection. This view is therefore devoid of any sound basis. Let's move on to the more common views. There have been some attempts to explain sons of God as men, also rulers or kings, in the line of Seth, a theme misappropriated from Genesis 5. Also found in some interpretations is righteous people. However, both explanations, which are basically the same argument, fail for some important reasons. The term sons of God is found throughout scripture from one end of your Bible to the other, and it means the same basic thing every time, although the application changes. Prior to the advent of Christ, the term sons of God refers exclusively to individuals or a nation created divinely by God himself. Adam, the first man, was called the son of God, that's Luke 3.38, but all subsequent people are called sons of Adam. Compare the above application of sons of God with these examples. Job 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. In the early chapters of Job, it's clear that Hasatan, or the Satan, is to be considered distinct as an individual among creatures of a similar kind when the text refers to them all as B'nai Ha Elohim, or the sons of God. And reading the narrative in Job, it is clear that Satan can do things that no human can do. He is certainly not considered a righteous person. Later in Job, we find further clarification that the sons of God cannot be human, as they were already in existence before the creation of mankind and even the earth itself. This is Job 38, verses 4 to 7, 
Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof if thou knowest? For who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened, or who laid the cornerstone thereof when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Psalm 82 further illustrates this distinction between the sons of God and humanity when God pronounces judgment upon the gods or children of the Most High in declaring that although God did give them the position of gods as his children, they were condemned to death like men. This is intended to drive home the point that because of their poor judgment, they had lost that special distinction and would share the fate of sinful mortals. While this passage does not share identical phrasing with Job in Genesis 6, the subject matter is the same. Here's Psalm 82. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty, he judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy, rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness, all the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Perhaps the best illustration of the distinction between the heavenly sons of God and mankind comes from Hebrews chapter 2, in which the writer quoting Psalm 8 to express his humanity lays out a clear message that Jesus Christ came manifest to earth not as an angel, but as a man. Hebrews 2, 9 and 16. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. So the main obstacle to the idea that the sons of God were just good people is the simple fact that the consensus of Scripture disagrees. Likewise, we find no basis for the notion that the sons of God were human kings or rulers, a notion likely derived from attempts to find parallels between the genealogies of Scripture with the Sumerian king list the king list view of Genesis 5 disintegrates further when we acknowledge the fact that the Sumerians associated the demigods, which they called the Apkalu, with their kings. So those who claim a king list view of the genealogies must also accept that the supernatural beings are inextricably connected in the Sumerian material, which is exactly the kind of conclusion they're trying to avoid. Righteous people, or those of the line of Seth, again doesn't work, because... Well, if they'd been found righteous and undefiled before God, then he would have put them on the ark with Noah. This is the same God that later promised Abraham that he would not destroy Sodom if even ten righteous people could be found there, and kept that promise. So if the Sethites were righteous before God, then in keeping with his good character, they also would have been spared. Instead, we find that God himself declares to Noah that only he and his household were considered righteous before God. Genesis 7 verse 1, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. The repeated use of the phrases all flesh, the earth, and corrupt in Genesis 6 indicates quite clearly that at this time there was not a line of righteous people being referred to. Noah's family was quite alone in this regard. Additionally, nowhere is Noah referred to as a king in the line of Seth, which might be expected if the lineage of kingship was at all intended in Genesis 5. 
Therefore, the Sethite arguments fail in light of the correct view, which equates sons of God with divine beings. All this leads us to conclude so far that the sons of God phrase was used for a reason. The writer could have given us sons of men. He could have written lords or kings or chiefs. He could have told us it was the sons of Seth or even sons of Adam and it would have been sufficient, unless he was trying to tell us without a doubt that the sons of God were not human beings at all. So a logical analysis of the text in question leads us to discern that the biblical author intended the reader to grasp the concept of an interaction between the realms of mortals and the divine. Having noted that, we must now turn our attention to the question, is that what the audience actually understood? And we will see that the answer is a resounding yes. This supernatural understanding of scripture was not a fringe theory in antiquity. It was not just one of many views on the subject. It was the only view held by ancient Israel. It was the only view of the Old Testament writers. It was the only view of Second Temple Judaism. It was the only view of Jesus Christ himself. It was the only view of the apostles. It was the only view of the New Testament writers. And it was the only view held by the church fathers for hundreds of years. And that's the end of the quote. So hopefully that's enough to satisfy anyone still asking the question about whether it's legitimate to consider the sons of God in Genesis 6 as divine beings or not. Excellent. And, and don't forget, listeners, you too can get yourself a copy of the book, Answers to Giant Questions by T.J. Stebbin on Amazon, paperback or Kindle. And there's plenty more in the book. I must say that quote was just a, a small part of one chapter, and there's 40 of those in the book, plus all the footnotes, references and everything else to chew on. Thanks for that, Chris. I think this is probably as good a place to leave it as any. We'll come back and continue our deep dive into the origins of the Nephilim next week. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible, or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us at the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. Okay, well that means it's time for a Q&A for this week, and as it turns out, we have a very relevant question. For this discussion, we have a question from Ron through the Fallen Angels and Nephilim Facebook group. Ron wants to know if the Fallen Angels in Genesis 6, verse 2, were born or created. And he notes that in Hebrew, the term sons of God makes it sound like biological descent might be a possibility. What do you think, Tim? All right. Well, I guess that's a fair question if you're not familiar with the usage of that expression in Hebrew. Thanks for the question, Ron. It's kind of handy because I didn't actually address that concern earlier in this episode, so this is a good opportunity to tackle it. I mentioned earlier that the Hebrew phrase behind the translation, sons of God, is, as noted by Ron, the phrase, B'nai Ha'elohim. And you know what I'm going to do by now, right? For anyone who's been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that what I'm going to do is I'm going to look for examples of that kind of expression elsewhere in Scripture and see what kind of conclusions we can reach from the way that it gets used. I've already talked a little bit earlier in this episode about the exact phrase, sons of God, but if we're going to get this right, what we really need to do is break it down even further. What does it mean to be considered a son of someone? And I guess it would be fair to start with biological connections. It should be fairly obvious to anyone who's read any part of the Bible anywhere that it's pretty common for somebody to be referred to as the son of their father or mother. My question is, is that the only sense in which this phrase can be understood? So I'm not going to bore you with the ordinary everyday stuff like going through genealogies and that kind of thing. I think we can take it as given that when a person has a son, that son is going to be referred to as the son of the parent. We just want to see if we have any other options. 
Yeah, it's good to be open-minded about these things. Yeah, Ron's question specifically was to ask if they were born or created. And for those who came in late, I did an episode back in season one about a biblical definition of creation. And I think you really need to check that one out because that's going to change the way that you think about creation as far as a reading of Genesis 1 is concerned. However, for the purposes of this question, I think it's perfectly legitimate to think in terms of origins rather than function, as we have discussed in that episode and elsewhere. And I think that gets closer to the intent behind Ron's question anyway. But before we pursue that line of thinking any further, let's get back to what I was saying a moment ago about different ways that we can understand the idea of being a son of someone. The idea of a son in biblical thinking was to build up the household. And that was taken figuratively in the picture of building a family home. So you build out of bricks and all the bricks are going to be the same and all the bricks will come from the same mold that the first brick was made from. Every subsequent brick resembles the first one and functions like the first one. So you can see how that works in a family structure where the children resemble the parents and are going to grow up to be just like them. In that sense, children are also called sons of their grandfathers and their earlier ancestors. And a man could be addressed as father even if he was the grandfather of the child. The word for father is av, as in our father. But that image of resemblance and likeness in form and function carries beyond family structures. Sometimes people were called sons of something because they represented or exemplified a certain trait or behavior or characteristic. So that gives rise to expressions like the son of perdition in John 17, 12. Jesus prayed, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, son of perdition is not a reference to Judas's dad. By the way, uh, perdition is just an oldie-weldie term for destruction. Thanks for that, King Jimmy. And certainly we see in Judas someone who exemplifies destruction, because everything that he tried to achieve came to nothing, including his own life. Now, this is Mark 3.17. And James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, and he surnamed them Boanerges, which is the sons of Thunder. Again, Jesus isn't saying that these guys had a dad whose name was Thunder. Uh, he was talking about the way that these guys lived. They were bold and rambunctious and very forthright. They didn't pull their punches. Jesus was obviously very fond of them, and that's why they got a nickname that told us a little something about the character of these men. So traits and attributes are one way that the expression of being a son could be used. Yeah, there are still other ways to think about sons in the Bible. Getting back to that idea of the bricks and being the same in form and function, another way that a person could be considered the son of somebody is to be trained in a skill or discipline. If you were trained under a master craftsman, then you were said to be a son. You could be trained in the priesthood or trained in sorcery or trained in metalworking or whatever it was. We've got some examples of that. Amos chapter 7, verse 14. So Amos answered Amaziah, I was not a prophet or the son of a prophet, rather I was a herdsman and I took care of sycamore figs. Uh, is Matthew thirteen fifty-five? is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Second Samuel 21, verse 16, then Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giant, whose bronze spear weighed about eight pounds and who wore new armor, intended to kill David. Now, that last one, that's really interesting. Let's tackle the obvious bit first. This guy is called one of the descendants, or you might have the sons of the giant in your translation. Maybe you don't even have giant in your translation. You might have a name given, which is Rafa. There is some speculation around this name, because if we understand Rafa as giant because of its connection to terms like Rephaim, 
it sounds like we might be saying that there was a well-known giant who had sons and this guy was one of those, so there's a family of giants. And that could be the case, but there are also other options. I mentioned earlier that you could have some kind of trade or profession or some kind of public ministry that you could be trained in and you would be referred to as a son of that trade or profession, as we saw a moment ago, and as in a son of a prophet, son of the carpenter, that sort of thing. It's actually possible that what we're looking at here is a transliteration from Canaanite and Rapha is supposed to be understood as Rapiu, that's the name of a god in the Canaanite pantheon. Uh, if you want more about that, I did write about it in my book. Basically, he's a god of the underworld and the power behind other biblical characters such as Og of Bashan and Agag the Amalekite. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Mm. What this is telling us is that to be considered a son of Rapiu is to be involved in some kind of cultic ministry associated with that god, kind of like being the son of a prophet or something like that. So that's one little nugget to glean out of that verse, but there's another one hiding. Have a look at the name of this guy who tried to kill David. Ishbibanov is not really a proper name. It looks like we're supposed to be reading it as Ishbi, son of the Ove. So when you catch that little bit in the middle that says Ben, and you realize that's the Hebrew term for son of, the next question to ask is, son of what? Now we're getting into some really dark stuff. We've got some really ancient records from the Hittites and Canaanites that talk about these ritual practices where they would summon the dead. This is what King Saul was getting involved in with the witch of Endor. She was literally known as the Lady of the Ove. So what's an Ove? Yeah, you might be wondering, what's an Ove? So I'm going to tell you. You dig a well deep enough to get water, then you do rituals and incantations and that kind of thing because you're trying to summon a spirit from the watery underworld and you have to throw an offering down the hole. But you can't just throw anything. The spirits want blood and not just a little bit of it. You know, there's that bit in the story of Saul when he goes to visit the witch and after the encounter with the spirit of Samuel, the witch tells Saul that he'd better stay the night and eat something before he goes. That's not just good customer service. That's for the same reason why they give you a cookie after you donate blood. You've been left weakened and that's why you need to regain your strength with food and those of you who have read my book will be aware that one of the terms associated with the use of the term Rephaim, from which we get these connections with Rapiu, has the idea of weakness. Literally, the Rephaim are the weakeners. You'll find that use employed in Isaiah 14 if you want to have a look. Anyway, what was the point of that massive side quest? The idea is that people could be called the son of something if they had some quality or attribute which made them like their predecessor whether that be a parent or a teacher or perhaps a divine being that operates in the body of that person. Oh, and everyone says to me, these giants after the flood, surely there's no way there could be giants after the flood without fallen angels having sex with women. But what do we see here? This guy who was trying to kill David is actually called son of the Ove, like he's actually following in the footsteps of the dead Nephilim, having summoned and become empowered by those demonic spirits. Do you even know what would have happened to King Saul if it hadn't been for the intervention of God to bring Samuel himself instead of whoever it was that the witch was expecting to answer that call. Yeah, you weren't joking. That's pretty dark. Yeah, not to be messed with. Um, by the way, did anyone watch the most recent Ghostbusters movie? There was one of those pits in it. People are aware of this kind of stuff, and maybe they're still doing it. I don't know. I reckon this stuff goes all the way back to Nimrod, at least, in the biblical record, and it's going to be awesome when we eventually get to Genesis 10. And we can talk a bit more about that on the podcast. The point is, for the purposes of Ron's question, a son of God in the Old Testament was a divine being that had the form and function of God the Father to a significantly lesser extent. Again, there's that idea of being a brick made from the same mold, something of the same type. 
that doesn't make them equal to the Most High God, but it does make them like him in certain respects and unlike him in others. Yahweh is unique as the creator of everything, and he certainly did create the sons of God. But they're like him in that they have a spiritual nature. Their natural habitation is not restricted to time and space in the same way that we understand those things, although they are definitely not eternal because they were created by God, which makes them finite. They also share in certain aspects of the functions that God carries out. We see, for example, in the book of Job and in 1 Kings chapter 22, And in Psalm 82, which I read earlier, there are all these examples where the sons of God are supposed to be involved in governance of the world and participation in the destinies of mankind. Whether they do that well or otherwise is another issue. So the reason they're called sons of God is because they participate in the purposes of God and they share certain of God's attributes. Is that why believers are called sons of God in the New Testament? Yeah, that's exactly why. That's not calling believers divine beings or gods or anything like that but it is indicative of a future destiny of glorification and of participation, even now, in the kingdom of God. That's what we do when we pray and intercede for other people. That's how we participate in what God is doing. And I'm sure that in the life to come, those roles and ministries will be expanded. So anyway, as much as I love talking about all this, we've got to wrap it up and to put it in a nutshell and answer Ron's question. The sons of God were certainly created rather than begotten in some biological sense. And they are called sons because of the similarities that they have as a class of divine beings that make them kind of like God in some respects. So there you go. We even got to talk about necromancy and giants and all sorts of cool stuff as well. So I hope that was interesting and a good answer to that question. Yeah, I think it was. It was fascinating. But uh, it's about time we wrap it up. So what have we got going on next week? Okay, so as I mentioned, next week we'll be continuing in our exploration of the sons of God and the Nephilim. So... Don't go anywhere. Make sure you keep those giant questions rolling in. We will catch you next week. We will. Bye-bye. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Great Forsaken, greatforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more answers to giant questions. Read the blog and catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Yeah, this is indeed our 100th episode. I've listened to you for 100 episodes. Well, you might be the only person who has. The only person mad enough to go there. <laughs> Surely not. Thanks for that, Chris. I think it's probably as good as place to... I'm sure there's people who've been here since day one. Oh, well, we'll find out. We'll find out. That'd be good to know. It would, yeah. Anyway, the point is for the purposes... For the... The point is for the purposes, and I am now drinking lemonade with bourbon.
That sounds fancy. Much like the man drinking it in the Stormtrooper glass, no less. Yes. So you know I'm serious. But we are definitely not saying that the biblical authors were the biblical authors. Maybe too much southern comfort, not enough lemonade. Remember that TV show, Sons and Daughters? It used to be on like daytime soapy TV. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, it's oh. coming. <laughs> what was it's that coming. Christian band called? Um, not Sons and Daughters, but something like that. Oh, anyway, they only made like two albums, but it's pretty good. Good stuff. Okay. Uh, um, oh, what were they called? I don't know. Anyway, yep, I don't know what to say either, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh. And his brethren, James and Joseph and. Simon and Juice, Judas, Juices. Uh, Use my Dungeon Master type improv skills. And, um, how'd that go? Uh, good, yeah. I played on Friday night and then I ran a game on Saturday night, just like a done in one adventure for some people mm-hmm. who hadn't played before. So, two of my colleagues and one of their housemates. Um, but right. yeah, it was good. And then um, uh, another bunch of colleagues from another division want me to do one for them. And then some guys from Old Church want me to do one for them as well so yeah it's good wow you could make this a career path which some people have but um i have seen a lot of other people online do that. That do it. don't yeah. know if it would be like a steady income stream but um yeah it's quite surprising how many uh people are doing it these days it's mm, good. wow i didn't even know that was a thing yeah yeah um there's a thing called D in a castle which is exactly what it sounds it's a annual right. uh thing in some actual medieval castle in scotland uh-huh. i think um that would be cool to do that. But. Yeah, right. Well, that sounds a bit better than the idea I had because I was going to say D&D on the throne, but then, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's where some of, you know, once you get to our age, that's where some of our greatest battles are fought. Candy Crush. We've all been there. <laughs> <sighs> all right. Um, okay. From one verbal diarrhea to another. Ha, <laughs> <laughs>